attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Hey, it's Jeff here. What you're about to hear is the recording from our weekly Context and Clarity live show that I co-host with Catherine McPhail. Every week, we bring in a special guest that will help us dig even deeper and find even more clarity around the most popular context and clarity topics. This version of context and clarity is simulcast to Facebook and LinkedIn and YouTube and Twitch. Oh, and did I mention that they're live? We're operating without a net, so we may hit a few rough patches and stumble every once in a while. But I think these guests and these conversations are important enough that we really shouldn't keep them to ourselves. So with that, let's jump into this week's episode. This episode of Context and Clarity is supported by Twinmotion, the simple real-time rendering solution to create high-quality imagery client presentations, and interactive experiences that help communicate your design ideas fast. To learn more, visit Twinmotion at twinmotion.link slash clarity. This episode of the Context and Clarity podcast is also supported by Section Cut, the interactive virtual conference from our friends at Monograph. Learn more at sectioncut.com. All right, Entree Architect community, it's 4 p.m. Eastern, which means it's time for the Entree Architect Context and Clarity Conversation for Thursday. Uh, Where are we? August 5th, 2021. And this is a live session, in case you hadn't noticed that by now. It's Thursday, so we have a special guest today. Uh, Glad to have all of you with us today. As you get here, say hi. Let us know that you're here and let us know where you're joining the conversation from. And uh, for those of you that are listening to this in the future, which is kind of a bizarre co- concept right now on the uh, podcast version, welcome. Glad you're listening along with us, and uh, we will uh, uh, produce a really interesting conversation, really fun conversation for you today with a very special guest 
that we have here. And if you've never met us before, my name is Jeff. I'm in Indianapolis, and I'm joined by... Oh, hi, I'm Catherine. <laughs> joined by Catherine. Where are you, Catherine? Yeah. I'm in Massachusetts. All right. You have to come here every every week from Massachusetts. Yep, it's a long it's a uh, it's a long flight from Massachusetts and Indiana from to wherever it is we are here in the ether. But uh, we're glad that all of you are joining us from all over the internet right now. So uh, those of you who are joining us from the Entree Architect Community Facebook group, uh, some of you we see you like Rod. We see your name and and uh, your uh, avatar there. Great to have you uh, from your porch there, Rod from. Uh, Monroe, Louisiana. And uh, if you're showing up on the screen on uh, Facebook as Facebook user, uh, the reason is because Facebook has privacy policies, which we uh, appreciate and respect. We cannot let your information outside of Facebook unless you say it's okay. So if you want to show up with your name and your avatar rather than Facebook user, then there is a URL at the bottom left of your screen. It's chat dot restream.io slash fb as in facebook if you'd like your name to appear just go to that url and give facebook permission to shoot your name and avatar out to us and we will see you in the comments we see nicole over on twitch we see ed shannon hi ed shannon over on the uh, linkedin side of things and uh don duncan hi don how are you today great to have you with us from uh, the linkedin side of things so uh, again, everybody say hi when you get here. Let us know that you're here and let us know where you're joining the conversation from. Uh, today, we're going to continue the theme that we've had all week in our daily chats. We've been talking about the future of the profession of architecture. We started out Monday uh, because at least in, in the United States, we know in other places in the world, uh, it's a slightly different timeline. But in the United States here in about three and a half weeks, We'll have some 17, 18, 19-year-olds starting their architectural education for the first time. We'll have people going back. You know, they're, they may be into a BARC or into an MARC program and uh, going back to continue their architectural education. So the question on Monday was, what advice do you have for students? And then on Tuesday, we uh, took a little different, a little different direction uh, on the uh, on the theme, and we asked the question. As I'm scrolling to my notes, we asked the question, um, how can architects serve the 99%? If the majority of work, the majority of work that's permitted, at least in the United States, again, apologies for the, the U.S.-centric comments here. It may be different if you're somewhere else in the world, but at least in the United States, there's an awful lot of work, maybe the majority of work that doesn't involve an architect. So how can architects serve small projects, small budget? Um, how can architects be relevant, accessible to a wider, um, a larger percentage of the population? And then yesterday we talked about the responsibility of the individual architect when it comes to the future of the profession and advancing the profession. So those are, um, those are the things that we've started or, there, or that we've talked about this week, which leads us, I think, perfectly to our guest today. Um, Switching there. Um, I'm really excited about this today because uh, this is somebody that uh, I've looked up to for a while. I've been in, until COVID. I, I went to uh, every uh, 
national conference for years and years and years and always enjoyed them and always appreciated um, this person in their role and their role from stage in those different events. And so what I want to do today is let you know that our guest today is an architect. And he's also been an editor. He's a speaker and an author. He's one of only eight designated by Alpha Road uh, Kai as a master architect. That's an interesting little fact. Uh, he's the executive pre- vice president and the CEO of the American Institute of Architects. Robert Ivey, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Hey, thank you, Jeff. Glad to be here. I'm, I'm glad that you could join us. First of all, for those of you that don't know, Robert Ivey has been the CEO of, of the AIA for about 10 years now, and you're headed towards a different chapter of your life, right? Yes, indeed. Uh, a new dawn, let's call it. <laughs> Very good. We we um, I was trying to remember this. We had a guest at some point earlier, a month or two ago, that said they're a repurposed architect. Maybe that's a role that you could take on as well. There you go. <laughs> I'll, I'll take all the suggestions. Just put them in the chat. Uh, <laughs> give me some ideas. Yeah. Very good. We know we know that you'll stay busy, but I one of the things that I've always been curious of, and again, you you are an architect. Um, you had your own practice for a while, and then you went into publishing. So you were McGraw Hill, uh, Arc Record, et cetera, and then on to AIA. So how does somebody go from architecture and having your practice into into publishing? How how did that happen? Well, actually, I think there's a message here for a lot of people, and that is that not everyone is cut out to only do design work. And uh, in my undergraduate life, I studied English. I was uh, an English major in college, and I got a degree, BA in English, and I wanted to be a writer. But every writer has to have something to write about. And if you don't, you... You lose your mind or you become an alcoholic. You have to have a subject, right? So my subject, it turns out, was architecture. I had always loved it. I went to architecture school, just like all of us. I I went to Tulane in New Orleans. And when I got out, the as I literally walked up to the front porch of the building where my new employer was standing, he said, "Uh, Hey, Robert, um, I understand that you like to write, and you have a degree in English, and I'm the editor of the State Architecture Journal. Would you like to write an article? I mean, it literally happened like that. And I said, yep. And from there on in, it was no holes barred. I I wrote for free for the State Journal. You can imagine. I was from Mississippi. It was a tiny journal. Actually, it wasn't bad. And... um, and then in a couple of years, I was actually writing for national publications. There are not many people that write about architecture in the in just the sheer number of people. So I found myself traveling all over the Southeast, and I sort of became the Southeast guy, person. Uh, and I would write for national publications about this whole burgeoning uh, group of people that were making terrific architecture all over this large geographic area. So I would write about Sam Mockby, my friend who lived 90 miles away from me, Faye Jones up in Arkansas, uh, Merrill Elam and Max Goggin in Atlanta, or just interesting people that were doing interesting things. That stayed with me. I ended up editing, you know, uh, guest editing an issue of A Plus U in Japan. I did made films, uh, and I started a magazine. 
And I did all that while I was practicing architecture. So I would practice all week. And typically uh, on the weekends, I would write and do that other work. So I really considered myself having a sort of dual career. Mm-hmm. And at a certain moment, I realized when I was old enough, and I'd been in the practice for 15 years and been a partner, fish or cut bait, the old phrase, you know, focus. And uh, I recognized I had to focus if I were going to really achieve at the next level. So I moved into writing full time and uh, finished up my work with the magazine that I had begun in the Southeast. And moved to New York, where I became the editor of Architecture Record, and had 15 wonderful years there, and still loved to write. I just had a book that came out this past November. Tell us about the book. Well, uh, that was a passion project. Uh, a place that I had visited in Europe is one of the most extraordinary sites uh, that I had really run across. Uh, a client had a vineyard, and he was advised to build architecture, uh, great architecture, into the body of this vineyard. For instance, for the, the place where the wine was stored, he employed a great architect to do barrel vaults, just simple aluminum spring vaults over the storage for the wine. And then he employed, of all people, Renzo Piano to do a small embedded solar building for display, and he got Tadao Ando to take a little chapel that was up on a hill and wrap it in glass, and he got Andy Goldsworthy to do an installation into a hillside, and Sean Scully to do a big, huge, anyway, art and architecture on the grounds of this magnificent site, and I got to observe it being built over a number of years, and finally a, a publisher in London put it together in a book. A friend of mine, a guy I went to architecture school, Alan Karchma, is a really good architectural photographer. So Alan and I went over there and looked at it. He shot it, and it's you can buy it on Amazon right now. I don't have a financial <laughs> interest in it, but uh, it, it's called Chateau Lacoste, Art and Architecture wow. in Provence, and it's available for sale. All right, there you go. So everybody out there, uh, jump on over to Amazon and pick up your copy now. That's That's great. Um, you know, you mentioned something uh, sort of towards the beginning of that story that yeah. you realized that not everybody is cut out to, to be an architect to practice, maybe. Yep. And, um, you know, that resonates with me. My career has gone away from design into the marketing and business sure. development side. Um, we, we start out these, com- these context and clarity conversations. They come in a lot of forms. And every morning we have what we call our coffee talks over on the Clubhouse app. And so we'll preview the afternoon conversation. And this morning in that conversation, someone said, ask Robert. <laughs> ask Robert, you know, the, the idea that, uh, that some people hold. Obviously, you don't necessarily hold that idea. Yeah. Um, you know, everybody that goes to architecture school needs to be an architect. This idea that, um, and, and maybe you can tell me how you feel about this specifically. Sure. Does everybody need to be licensed? Um, or is there a lot of room for a lot of different roles in this profession? Oh, I, I absolutely believe there's room for different roles. And I'm, I'm living proof of it. And I, many people that I know like you uh, share that. I mean, actually, when I was in architecture school, I was a good student and uh, 
graduated, and, and I'm extremely proud of the buildings that we did for 15 years. I can tell you about the clients and the school boards and the long nights and making payroll and uh, worrying about the communities and working with folks. I mean, it was extremely rewarding. And it helped inform my work as an editor and a writer, and then really particularly here with AIA, because I felt all that pressure and and felt all the joy that goes with it for a long time. But I wouldn't say not everyone needs to be an architect, but I don't. I know that everyone doesn't need to be a designer. And I think the schools, uh, because it, it is the language of architecture, we have to learn the language. The language is three-dimensional, four-dimensional, really, if you include time. And you have to learn that language. That's what sets us apart. But it doesn't mean that you need to practice it day in and day out for the rest of your lives. Uh, many, many people uh, are great clients that, that were trained as architects. Uh, they, they go on to other things and end up commissioning architecture, and they make really great informed clients. Some, like me, write about it. Some others uh, just carry it forward. It, I think it's a form of education that, is probably not fully understood by the larger culture, although we know that people admire architects and architecture. They don't understand what we do, and that's a message that we all, I think, can share. Uh, so a, a role we've got is to be able to share you know, what the value of it all is. The education is extremely valuable and I think gives us a different perspective about the world the ability to look at things that are infinitely small, to look at things that are infinitely cosmic and grand. And we're synthesizers. That's part of who we are. We we think holistically, and most people don't think that way. Yeah. Some few do. You know, physicists might, uh, biologists might. But I think our education trains us. And to answer the long answer to your question, it can train us to do a great many things. Yeah. So I don't. No, I don't think that everyone needs to be licensed. I don't think that everybody needs to be a designer. I think the education stands on its own value for what where it can lead us and what we can do with it. You, you mentioned communicating the, you know, the value, and and, and that's the age old struggle, right? Sure. You know, um, for the, those in the know, those that have been uh, around and aware of AIA for a while, there've been a couple of rounds of of. Um, advertisements and, and campaigns and things like that. Um, but, but I think, you know, we're still, no matter, you know, how any of those campaigns went or how anybody feels about those campaigns, I think we're always going to be in this position where we have a public, like you said, I mean, they don't understand. Uh, mm -hmm. I often say that I, I, so I graduated from ball state and, yep. um, you know, there, there's the College of Architecture and Planning building on campus, and that's where the weird kids are, right? Yeah. That's where the kids are that never leave the building, right? They're yeah. there all day, every day. And, and, you know, I think that's where the not understanding, I guess, probably starts. So, you know, you, you've been at AIA for, for 10 years. As you look, to, you know, to your, your future is going to change. Yep. But if you look at the future of the profession, you know, whether it's communicating the value, helping yep. people understand, sure. or or just staying relevant as things continue to change around us and that change accelerates, what do you think 
uh, are maybe one or two of the top things that architects need to do or change um, as, as individuals or as a profession in order to keep up with the, the changing times that are coming? Well, uh, Jeff, I mean, that's a, you know, it's a huge question. I know. Uh, I've, I've, I've got to, I've got to, I can grapple with it a little bit like a catfish. I can get my arms around it. Uh, and let's just see where it takes us. I think that um, the complexity of the world that we're living in right now demands so much of us as architects uh, to address. And as a client now, because we're redoing the building that I'm sitting in here in Washington, I'm working on the client end, which is really rewarding, but weird. And uh, But what I see is what I knew uh, as an architect. We are now having to work with so many people to achieve the same things that just a few people could have done originally. Uh, in my past, I've known architects from other eras in my lifetime who could produce a set of drawings, say for a courthouse, in 10 sheets by hand on paper. Right. Well, try to do that today. It might be 135 different uh, displays and in three dimensions. It often, and then with numerous consultants that would be involved, the, the, the level of complexity of building projects is extremely high. Uh, we're working with a group that has a change management consultant. I didn't even know such a thing existed until we did this job, but they're helping to work with us on the way people are working now. And we all know, obviously, since the pandemic, I mean, it smacks you in the face. We're certainly working differently uh, every day. So I think the complexity of the profession also is a great opportunity for every one of us because each of us has strengths, and in fact, our strengths may lie in one of those specialties. Uh, or it allows us to expand our practices in a way that we perhaps had not thought of before. It's my belief that, and in fact, I know some architects that have done this, they've expanded the range of their services. We often complain in design and construction about the sign curve of the economy. It goes up, it goes down, and I've been through three, maybe four recessions in my work life. They're not fun. Uh, 2008, of course, being the worst. So how do you flatten those out? Well, one of the ways to do that is do something that's countercyclical. For instance, building operations. Many of us hate the fact that we make a project and walk away, and then it's operated improperly. Uh, you build a building that's, say, highly energy efficient, and then someone comes in and runs the air conditioner all day long. I, that's just a very sort of dumb example. But what if architects were also helped monitor and evaluate or even provide services for buildings after they open? And I do know a couple of architects that are doing that now. But the point is not that we should do that. The point is the range of services is so broad. And the options and offerings that go with being an architect are so wide now that I can see many of us finding places within that continuum that would allow us to do more or less of any one of those really fascinating fields. The other side of it is, though, I, I think when you really think about it in a, in a bigger sense, part of what that skill that we're given when we learn design is the power to synthesize information. It's to take all these streams that come fluttering into us from here and there 
and to look at them and evaluate them and then turn them into something. That's sort of what architecture is. At, at the simplest level, it's listening to clients and hearing what they need and then translating that into built form or into a plan. A plan may never be built. But the point is to, to assimilate information, to take it in, and then turn it into something that was not there before, hopefully something that's of real worth. So that assimilation, that's, that ability to synchronize information, I think will have high value. It, it has it now. I think it will increasingly have it in the future because we can look at the whole picture uh, in a way that others find difficult, that three-dimensional, four-dimensional way that includes time, where we can literally help foster, broker this complex process through to successful conclusion. So really that speaks to project management as much as it does to the design sense, but actually they're interrelated because you're looking at the thing holistically. You're looking at a project, a set of needs, uh, a set of design parameters, a set of people, time, light, uh, all the various variables that go into the making of any project. I think there's room for us, and I think more than that, there's going to be a need for us because uh, the world is a complex and demanding place, and we're trying to filter a lot of that through our minds right now. It's hard to do, but I think architects are well positioned to do it. Yeah, yeah, I agree. You know, and I, I gave you the big, <laughs> the big audacious question. You yeah. did a good job of of uh, of picking it apart there, and, and you know that the thing that sticks out, of course, is the complexity. Right? Yeah. It's not just this, it's all of these things. And so right. one of the things that I wonder is, you know, when we, when we go, going back to the campaigns, the different campaigns over the years, what can AIA do versus, or, or yes and, mm -hmm. what does the individual architect, you know, what's the role of the individual architect in communicating all of these things? Sure. Um, because you, I mean, I love the idea of flattening the curve, right? That's a great example, flattening that curve. Yep. My feeling is AIA can't communicate all of that, right? Sure. Somebody that's doing this other thing that's flattening the curve has to be able to explain that. So yep. um, how, how do you feel about what AIA can and can't do and what the sure. individual has has to take up? Another great question. Uh, so I'll, I'll take a crack at it. Uh, the, uh, I look at it at both scales. Well, the first thing is, and I, it's a fact, and I really wasn't, I really hadn't focused on it until um, I came into this job, and we were looking at how to promote the profession, the very question that you're asking. There aren't very many of us. That's the real secret to this sauce. Uh, there are only, you know, 120,000 licensed architects in the country. And my stock line that always gets a chuckle at a, you know, at a conference, or some people now have heard it 20 times, is that there are that many lawyers in the state of California, actually more. We're really small in number, but our ability to affect change in society is immense. Uh, the construction economy is a trillion and a quarter dollars, and we specify virtually all of the products and services that go into that construction economy if we're involved at a commercial level, for instance. Right, right. That's our work. That's what we do. So our influence is huge. We may not know it or even fully accept it, but it's there. People, we did a survey when I came to this job here at AIA. We did a big survey of a firm in New York, friends of mine at Pentagram, 
conducted a survey for us, and they found, and this was with over 30,000 people, this included clients, ordinary folks, uh, architects, and, and related professionals. People admire architects. They're the, they're the people they'd like to promote, put on TV, make uh, videos and movies about, but they don't have a clue what we do. They do not understand it. So this is an ongoing effort on all of our parts. A, a group like the association can gather the resources together for all of us to be able to get the word out through certain channels. But the larger question, and I think that's really the more interesting one, is what do we, what do I do about it? John Q. Architect, Jane Q. Architect, what do I do about it? And the fact is, we've created a culture that is unfortunately hermetic. And by that, I mean it's sealed off in its own secret sauce, in its own secret bottle. We've chosen that, and it's the place where the people don't turn out the lights at night. We've, we've defined ourselves by these oddities or these differences. Instead, uh, we, we need to find common language with other people, and that kind of language is the way that they speak, not the way that we speak. We're trained a certain jargon, and we take pride in our knowledge to be able to keep up with the fancified folk in writing and media who can speak this uh, literati sort of language about architecture, but that is not what our clients know or appreciate. They want to know what does something cost? How will I build it? What can you do for me? How will the building you make be different from a building that I might make for myself? <laughs> That's plain language. How can we, as architects who really try to embellish everything that we do because design is a what is it it's it's a difficult uh set of values that, to be able to enumerate and to explain so we cloud it clothe it in this special language i think each one of us if we learn first to listen to our clients that's or listen to the communities we work with being empathetic with them trying to understand who they are and what they need and then being able to respond to that in our own direct way, we go miles toward being better understood. But it goes beyond that. I think we as a as a profession, as a group of people, are self-selecting. And part of what we love to do is design or do the technical work or write the specifications. We want to be at our desks, at our computers, doing our work with our heads down. And instead, where we really need to be is standing up in front of the school board and explaining why the project that they're asking for, what it really will consist of, and why that's different or better. Meeting with the Board of Supervisors in a county, uh, talking at uh, a city planning commission meeting, and talking about how a plan can make a great difference in the life of a community, talking about how architecture can make you healthier or uh, or better in some way, it can enhance your productivity or, or your knowledge. Uh, those are lessons every one of us could share. So if we each become, in our own way, a clear speaker, an empathetic listener, uh, and then we have to push ourselves one step forward to stand front and center and open our mouths and say what architecture can do. We need to be teachers. Uh, because what we've got isn't, the value of what we've got isn't going away. 
and where we where we intervene, where we take part, things improve. Uh, each one of us knows a building that we've done that changed the community or a family or a person, and we think changed it for the better. We certainly hope might have changed the whole city, might have changed something even grander. Uh, it, we can do great things, but I think that really makes there's a burden on each one of us. Now, yeah. having said that, the association really has made huge efforts. We poured money and resources into into sharing the value of architecture. I actually think the program that we inaugurated that has made the most difference for the least money uh, is the film challenge. And with the film challenge, and, and some smart people help us think this up, we got a young filmmaker and a young architect, they, they don't have to be young, but let's just say these are the proponents of people who submit, and they envision uh, a film, a brief film, the time is limited, they, they give you the amount of time you should be able to do it in, and a theme. And we make a film that shows you what it might be like, and then now hundreds of people submit films. And we've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people that have gone to our websites and viewed the films, voted on them, and uh, the winners are there for perpetuity, and they can be shared in your home city, at your firm, uh, with whomever you choose. It costs very little. It does a lot. And they're, they're usually about something that architects do that makes a difference. Yeah, the, for those of you that are out there, if you haven't checked out the, it's uh, this is the Architects Film Challenge. Yep, is that the right name? Uh, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> it, it, every every year at the conference, I like, you know, when they they pop up between speakers right. and so on, and and um, uh, there's some some really great work uh, going on in that challenge. Now, you've probably heard of Zaha Hadid Architects. They're one of the world's best-known firms, and when it comes to innovation, they're big fans of pushing boundaries. The team at ZHA has started using Twinmotion, a simple real-time ArcViz tool that lets you instantly visualize ideas and clearly communicate those ideas to stakeholders. ZHA designer Marco Magetta says that the benefits of using Twinmotion for designers are the simplicity of the interface, the playfulness with which you can articulate your scenes, and not having to worry about all the technical aspects that real time usually brings, like light maps, PBR workflows, or other technical details. Marco also loved Twinmotion Cloud, which lets any member of the team access a project from their web browser without a single download or installation. The project manager can access the model, review it, and immediately give you feedback anytime from anywhere, says Marco. To download your exclusive free trial, head to twinmotion.link slash clarity. That's twinmotion.link slash clarity. Monograph is building a community of like-minded firm owners and operations leaders who are looking for solutions that align with their firm's values. On top of that, Monograph is building the only cloud-based practice operations software built exclusively for architects by architects. Monograph's easy-to-use and beautifully designed software allows you and your team to know in near real time whether you are on pace to deliver a project on budget. With Monograph, you and your team can plan project schedules, 
budgets, role assignments, and team members all in one place. What's the best part of Monograph? And this is a big one for me. It doesn't require a degree in finance to use. To experience the difference today, sign up for a free trial at monograph.com. And to underscore their commitment to the architecture community, on August 12th, Monograph will be hosting their first ever virtual conference. It's called Section Cut. This one-day event brings firm owners, operations leaders, and project leaders together to learn from success stories and workshops, all with a goal of improving their business. Reserve a seat at Section Cut today by visiting sectioncut.com. Uh, Catherine, you need to uh, you need to read this comment from the the uh, anonymous. There you go. <clears throat> Question from an anonymous Facebook user in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Sambo Mockery told great stories with his architecture. You tell great stories about architecture. How do we as practitioners tell better stories about what we do? Good question. Great question. I mean, I think that's sort of at the core of, of my message. I think we, we need to be able to relate to people. And how do people most relate? Not through philosophy. Uh, not through, uh, let's say, intellectual debate. They relate through storytelling. And Sam Mockley had that rare gift where he could ground uh, great ideas in real life, in real places, with real people. They were often simple tales, uh, but they often used humor. And uh, I would call it common sense. So that and then he would throw in an allusion to Alberti or Vitruvius every now and then just to salt the, the storytelling. But he had, a, I will say, he had a natural gift as a storyteller. I'm not saying that everyone can do that very thing. But when you can, it really does share the value of architecture. Uh, and it can open up uh, acceptance on people's parts who are normally... I would say hands off or a little nervous about hearing about architecture or, or understanding what any given project is supposed to do. He could make he could put people at their ease about architecture, and I guess that's part of the lesson by relating to them as ordinary people. Now, much of the work that he did was for uh, just people. Uh, it wasn't necessarily for a school board. It might just be for housing for uh, people who were in need. It might be for a woman in Hale County who simply needed uh, this queen put over her windows that had cracked and broken, a young mother. That's, that's explicit need. The architectural solution was immediate. And he and students went and just did that work by hand. That's, that's also a great story. It shows people that architecture need not be, uh, I don't know, the latest project on the cover of one of the magazines that I would have edited. It's, uh, it's for everybody. And we all live in a building. <laughs> we all work. Uh, and, and think how it's all changed through the pandemic. We're living in our homes and working in our homes, trying to claw our way back to some new normalcy that we don't really fully understand yet. Yeah. I, I think that's a nice, um, nice transition, maybe back to that idea of the, you know, you were talking about the complexity earlier. Yeah. And you've got the the uh, example the example of uh, 
Sam Mockby and Rural Studio and, and Visqueen over Windows, you know, at, at, at that scale and that level of need. And of course, you, you have the, the, uh, uh, well, I know you sat on the jury for the Eisenhower Memorial. Uh, I did. Which was, uh, uh, Frank Gehry was, uh, his design was chosen or his firm's design was chosen for that. And so, I mean, that's, that's quite a spectrum, right? From, from Memorial down to, to Visqueen over windows. Yep. What is, what do you think the future looks like? Because the HOKs, the SOMs, the, you know, whoever of the world, uh, they're not going away. Certainly we hope, we hope. Um, But on on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps a lot of this audience are small firm architects, a lot of sole proprietors here. Yep. So, what what do you think the the balance and the coexistence of of you know that that sort of disparity looks like? Well, first of all, I don't worry about it a lot. Let me put it that way. Uh, we need the HOKs and the SOMs of the world because uh, they're working all over the world. Right. Uh, you know, SOM has built whole towns in China. China's remade itself. They've made whole districts in Beijing. Well, you're. My firm in Columbus, Mississippi, could never have done that. And yet, the population is booming And uh, in China. They needed, uh, they basically remade their entire country. SOM, during the recession, uh, most of their revenues, I believe, came from China, from one country. So I don't worry about HOK and I don't worry about SOM. They do great work. They've got great people. They employ about half the architects in the country. And yet what you describe is, okay, what do I do as a small practitioner? That's what I was. Uh, you know, I was a partner in a firm of about 30, and then I had my own office, which is me. So I've done it all. I've done all those ranges. We need the just me's. <laughs> and, and, and I relate to that school board. I worked in Mississippi, which is the poorest state in the union, period. It always is the 50th on any list. And the people that I worked with had minimal resources. They needed what we could do, however. Uh, I would go to a, we worked with school, uh, not exclusively, but we did a lot of school work. And one of the school districts that we worked with, uh, I went to a meeting with the teachers. And the teacher described how she had to carry a bucket into her classroom because her roof leaked and the school couldn't afford to have it fixed. A mother stood up at a, at a parent teacher meeting. Uh, that was a planning meeting for that school district and talked about how she would not drive her car to pick up her child because the roads weren't paid. I mean, that's the way that some of those districts are. And the appropriate solution there is not the same solution for downtown Beijing, believe me. It's something radically different. And I, I had to listen to them really carefully. And I don't know how great a job we did, but in one similar situation there, the biggest difference we could make cost very, very little. We changed the front of the school. It had to have a new image. And that mother that was afraid to drive to the front, we changed what the front was. We turned the building backwards and renovated a building at minimal cost and fixed the roofs. And I would say that it's not going to win a single design award, but I think it changed the psychology of a place after listening to the people that were there. Architects don't have to spend a lot of money to achieve great results. I mean, we do it every day. We, we renovate buildings, we 
we, we make uh, houses that people can live in. I mean, not everything needs to cost or be what we would call great. But I think in some ways, that work is just as great. Uh, it may not be lauded at the same level. Uh, it may not be as photogenic, but it may make a difference greater than any uh, other that might be done. I know in my own mind that getting a roof on a school teacher whose building was leaking transformed her ability to teach people. Well, please, what? how much more do we need to do than that? We do. We need to do a lot more, but that one act in my own life that I can look back on, and I'm just picking one little tiny piece of a, a practice that was richer than that. There's a small practitioner in a small state in a place where it's very difficult to get anything built at yeah. that time. So we make a difference, I think, at that scale, the large scale, and at the small. I think there's room for us in both places. Yeah. I, I You're telling that story, and it reminds me that the first first night of class, I'll tell my students that as an architect, you have one job. And that job is to make your client's life better. Yeah, great. Period. There you are. So yeah. you know that. I know that. And I think everybody on this call should know that. Yeah, uh, that's that's part of what we do, and that's part of why we wake up in the morning and go do it again when it's so hard, uh, and why we want to make it better, and why we volunteer. Uh, <laughs> that explains it. <laughs> that's what it is. <laughs> I I know uh, I know that we need to watch your time. Do we have? Do you have time for another question or two? Yeah, or take you... one. Yeah, one or two. Sure. Okay. Okay. Um, one of the so I want to say I did see uh, Manuel's comment a minute ago. See if I can scroll back to it. He says, "He says uh, Robert sounds like you. Did you guys rehearse? I promise, I did not pay Robert <laughs> to say any of this. <laughs> no, <laughs> he's, he's that's just funny. a much smarter guy than I am. So, oh, <laughs> yeah. what? Um, let, let me ask this. You know, as you head towards retirement. Yeah. You've been at AIA, like we said, for 10 years. What do you hope that AIA, or maybe it's something different, maybe it's maybe it's a new direction. What new direction uh, do you think AIA needs to take uh, as we head into 2022 and beyond? Uh, when I came, I, it was my goal to what I call position the association for the 21st century. This is a legacy institution. It's wonderful. It dates back to 1857, but part of the culture and part of the, 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 the ways it was perceived and the way it worked is that old. <laughs> it was ready for right. to be shaken up. So I go back to that survey that Pentagram did for us, which is wonderful. They came and basically laid us flat. They told us all these things that needed to change. We called it, it's something people didn't fully understand, but we call it repositioning the AA. We, we wanted to put it in a new place for a new century. And that's I've been chipping away at that for this whole period of time. And we've made some, I'm, I'm pleased to say that many of the things that were outlined by Michael Beirut and Pentagram and the other group from New York that came in and talked to us, we were able to do. The one thing that they said that you're really finding it difficult to do, not me, but this institution, is you're you're not seen as being bold enough for the time that we live in. And I am leaving thinking that this association 
has begun to be bold. That means provocative, and that means not necessarily that everyone agrees with everything that we do or say. But it's bold about some things that really matter. And in my own mind, I think we need to build on that ability of architects to take strong positions on things that matter for humanity. And I say that not as a social scientist or somebody trying to re-engineer society. I say that as an architect, as we all know, uh, facing challenges to our climate. Uh, when I was in school, many of us had long hair, wore Birkenstocks, did passive solar design, went to New Mexico, climbed up in Taos, and you know saw the, the great works, passive work in the past. Well, it's gone from there now to something that absolutely must happen. We And the great news is we've got the ability to affect the building's building performance in a way that we didn't have before. We've got technology and we've got skills that can make buildings highly energy efficient. Well, guess what? That's one of the answers that society needs. It just doesn't know it yet. We, uh, 40% of greenhouse gas emissions come from buildings. And instead, political talk centers on highways, roads, bridges, cars, uh, centers on methane gas and cows. And in fact, look at our quadrant that we could actually improve. Well, that's not going to happen overnight, but it's dramatic and it's bold and it needs to be embedded into all of our practice now and for the future. And if anything, we need to double down on it. The challenge for us right now is that clients don't really understand the need for that, that same energy consciousness that I think most of us uh, understand. We know that we find it hard to get them to pay for it. So there's a real, I think, a, a debate and discussion to be had, and we, we've got to bring it forward quickly for the future, about the value of getting beyond what a building costs in its first shot to how it's going to operate. Uh, and and that's a longer conversation than I can solve here briefly. But I think that's a real discussion point for us. We've been bound by first cost, uh, the cheapest building that a client typically can get away with, when in fact it won't perform as well typically without some additional investment. And that investment would make that building over a 20-year period operate extremely more efficiently, will not be... Uh, uh, a burden in carbon or in emissions at the level that they are today. That's a, an ongoing slog of a battle that we're going to have to continue to fulfill. I'd like to see this association put the systems in place that allowed that discussion to go forward, but really to go beyond us. This isn't just for us. We'll never solve this alone. I think another thing that I would see is that we, we think we've got the answer to everything, and I think, in fact, we have the answer to a lot of good things. But the only way we're going to get solutions is to link arms with others and to approach this uh, from a unified front. We need all the engineers with us. We need the land planners with us. And I'm just looking at climate. We need, we need clients with us. We need developers with us. We need uh, insurance companies with us. We need banks with us. Then the needle will move. And the first issue won't be first cost. It will be best operation or best building. Uh, and ultimately, that's where we're going to have to get to. Uh, the country's going to electric cars. 
We thought that would never happen in our lifetimes. Guess what? It's going to. And our buildings are our next frontier. And in fact, they're the bigger emitter. So let's, I'd say, let's double down. And for old, let's say what has to happen. And I think we've got our work cut out for us. I, I, I feel the same way about the inheritance of, of this profession. Uh, when I was in school, a professor turned to a woman that was, and there were a number of women in school at that point. I'm not that old. But the, the woman next to me, and he said, you know, women shouldn't be architects. I, I didn't hear him say it, but she left that classroom and wept. And that was in my lifetime in school. We have, we still have, we inherited a culture that was male-centric, not that men are bad, but that women aren't either. And we've got room for everybody. There's this, this whole question of reflecting the people that we're serving. And everybody used to look like me. Uh, they were white guys that, that went into this. It was sort of an elitist thing. Well, the world's, guess what? The world's changed and, and, uh, we've got room for everybody here because that's who's, that's who's at our door, uh, outside our door. Everybody. And, uh, we need to serve them and we'll serve them better by having many more of us who look like them. So I think those are two big things we've got to change and, Actually, at the association, we're working really hard uh, to to make those changes. That is uh, that's two great examples there, and it's I appreciate the uh, the, the boldness of it, but the the visionary aspect of that. Um, thank you for sharing that. We could continue this conversation for several more hours. Yeah. <laughs> I'm absolutely positive of that, but I know that uh, I know that you need to stay on schedule. So, um, yeah, you know, I think uh, f- for everybody in the audience, stick around and we'll wrap up this conversation here in a few minutes. But uh, but we need to let Robert uh, get on to uh, the next thing in his busy schedule. So, Robert, thank you very much for joining us. Um, thank you for your service to the profession and happy retirement to you. Hey, thank you. Uh, uh, read my next book. That'll, that'll help. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We'll we'll do that. We'll share the link when you publish it. Thanks a lot. Good All right. being with Thank you, you Robert. Right. Bye bye. Bye bye. Bye. Great to meet you. Enjoyed being with you. Thanks. Thanks. All right. Well, there you go. We had uh, Robert Ivy from the uh, American Institute of Architects with us. Yeah. I think that last statement was uh, was pretty inspiring. Thank yeah, you right it on. was. I. I would have written it down, but I don't have any paper. So I need to remember it until the end or I can listen again because he's so right. I mean, that is what we need to do for the future, and we do know how to do it. And so we need to convince people that it's worth investing in. Yeah. I I also like, and I don't want it to get buried. You know, he talked about sustainability. He talked about um, at least an aspect of of Jedi, which we've talked about before, Um, the idea of getting everybody with us I think is really important because I, 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 I do feel that a lot of times architects feel like they're on an island or, or maybe want to be on an island. You know, we can, we can do this. We can solve this. But I think that example on the sustainability side, you know, the, we need the insurance companies, we need the engineers, we need the, the bankers. I think that's a great example. So maybe, Mm-hmm. Maybe one of the answers is we need to to um, 
what, what's the what's the role? We need to be the uh, the profession that gathers everybody up. There's a better way to say that, but uh, I think that's a really great point. So, what what are the uh, what are the questions and comments that I know we weren't able to bring too no, many we, in? But we did not address Ed's very long comments. He he had that right out of the gate, so I think he had that ready yeah. to go and thought about it probably for a long time. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he did. So mm-hmm. let me, I'll read Ed's comment. We can see. There you go. You'll, you'll, we'll never be able to read the whole thing. Okay. Ed said, and this was right at the beginning of, of our uh, broadcast series, said, from my experience doing small projects, residential and light commercial, people will almost always go to a builder before they go to an architect. Even though a builder can offer little with no plans, people seem to be convinced that that is the first person to call. Uh, Oftentimes, architects are seen as a necessary evil, and in places where a licensed architect is not required, people will avoid using a licensed architect as they think they are too expensive. Can we change this? Can we focus on the tangible value that an architect brings to a building project? Tangible means money saved. The architect's fee paid for itself, less hassle. We used an architect this time, and the project went way smoother, even took less time. We need real people, uh, not just corporate CEOs, sharing positive experiences with hiring architects. Can AIA get hard data or or case studies where small uh, project clients have seen value beyond design and aesthetics that support this? I think those are all great points. I think one of, you know, Robert, uh, when he was talking about, uh, he was talking about the sustainability and the, um, he didn't say life cycle, but basically the life cycle cost. Uh, If we had had more time, the question I wanted to ask him was, do we need to get, do we, does the profession, do architects need to understand our clients businesses better right he's he's kind of framing that in sort of a uh, commercial project um, frame there so in that in that sense do we need to get do we need to be able to understand their businesses better because i think ed's right without those tangible uh being able to speak to tangible value it's hard it's hard to make a business case or it's hard to make a case to a business owner We've got to understand their business, though, right? We've got to understand the impact of this on their business. We can't, you know, he did talk about, uh, he didn't use the word speak, but we can't use speak in jargon. We can't use just design point of view, you know, our, our, mm-hmm. our work. We've got, to, we've got to understand the real impact that it makes on the 2022 budget that they're getting ready to approve in probably in three months or something like that. Um, yeah. I think that's a great point. <clears throat> well, and then reaching people through storytelling and making things um, relatable, I think, was another one of his points. Mm-hmm. It was interesting. Yeah. yeah. And Manuel says here that uh, it was quite a sprint and chock full of stuff that needs to be unpacked, studied, internalized, and put into practice. So much to do, so little time. Yeah, it's that's uh, that's what I think. Probably after every one of these conversations, there's a lot there, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that is uh, that's definitely the case. We 
did not. We didn't ask about ice cream. No, and this was, uh, I think, this morning on Clubhouse. And so for those of you that don't know, uh, every morning at 9 a.m. Eastern, we have a half-hour coffee talk on the Clubhouse app. And on Thursdays, um, the tradition has become previewing the conversation that we'll have with the uh, the guests for Context and Clarity Live. So I always like to know, and Catherine always likes to know, what questions would you like to ask our guests? And I think it was Nicole this morning that said, the first question you should ask is, what's your favorite ice cream? You know, I, oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that because I it wasn't at Clubhouse today. You were you were not at Clubhouse. Um, oh, I actually really contemplated using that as the first question. And for those of you that that don't get the inside joke, sort of inside joke, uh, I told the story the other day after someone said we should talk to students more. Um, I told the story of how I used to go to a there was a fourth grade teacher that asked me to come speak to their class every year about what architects do. And so the first year that I went, I took a roll of drawings and I took a model and some, you know, some websites and things for them to look at. And, you know, this is what architects do. And I got to the end and I said, okay, what questions do you have about what architects do? And there was a little girl that was sitting, you know, probably closest to me in the classroom that raised her hand and with the straightest of faces and um, the most sincere she could possibly be her question was what's your favorite ice cream <laughs> and i thought that was a fantastic question her teacher was mortified <laughs> that, she, that that was the question that she would ask but i thought it was a great question yeah what's so kind that, of sweet about that is that that's the kind of question a kid will ask when they want to make friends with somebody it, it, you know what and i think i think that's a great lesson mm-hmm. you know when when robert ivy was just um, on with us talking about being relatable, um, speaking to our clients in, in ways that they understand, etc. If you go in and, and talk to a fourth grade class, that's what they want to know is what's your favorite ice cream. You know, they're, they, they're trying <laughs> yeah. to relate to you. And, uh, I, I think, I think that's the lesson. How do we relate? Whether it's politicians that we need, we think we need to convince to support something or if it's a, uh, a client, potential client that we, we wonder why they go to the builder instead of, instead of coming to an architect first. I think that's a big part of it is, is the, uh, relatability piece of it. Hmm. Well, Jay, Jay says he's going to put that on his questionnaire and I think that's a great idea. And I am too. I am too. Then, if we ever go compete for the same job, Jay, they're going to wonder what what's this with architects and ice cream. So, a question I have is: Who in our audience is ready to start a podcast or video series called Architects and Ice Cream? Mm. <laughs> That'd be like comedians and cars with coffee, or whatever that one's called. Would it be similar? Yeah, it could to be. Could be, yeah. That's yeah just go out show. for ice cream with, with um, who would you take out to ice cream? Potential clients, I guess. Uh, well, you know, when I when I was thinking that, I was thinking take architects out, but maybe, maybe take clients out. Who are you thinking yeah. we take out with the ice cream? Architects. Other architects. But we we're trying to relate to the public here, Jay. Uh, yeah, but so we're we're trying to make architects more relatable to the public. Uh, Maybe not. 
Mm. I used to scoop ice cream. I mean, I think I'm pretty relatable because of that. It was a while ago. Janine says, no ice cream here, but I'll do architects and bacon. I'm on my way. <laughs> uh, let's see. Barry says there's a firm uh, local to him, and Barry's in Scotland. So good evening, Barry. Uh, called Ice Cream Architecture. Okay. That's, uh, that's a different approach. Let's Interesting. See. Let's see. Somebody says their wife wants to get an ice cream maker, then they could be like homesteaders, or they could be homesteaders like Jay. Hmm. Is Jay a homesteader? Ooh. Jay, are you a homesteader? Do you consider yeah. yourself a homesteader? Hmm. Um, Maybe. What? What? Um, I know there are a lot of questions uh, that we missed and a lot of comments that we missed uh, in this conversation today. But hopefully, a big takeaway is that you know there's there is a role, and you notice. Um, I wasn't I wasn't planning to ask the question about you know should everybody be an architect should everybody be licensed but you know he uh, you know just kind of flowed in that direction so why not and um, you know Robert talked he said several times in several different contexts that there's room for everybody um, meaning there's a role for everybody so uh, he never once said that everybody needs to be an AIA member right um, but I, I think the you know, to me, the big takeaway is probably always going to be that everybody, you know, everybody and every individual has a role to play here. Um, and we can't sit on the sidelines and whether it's AIA or NOMA or RIBA or RAIA or whichever organization, you know, we, we can't sit on the sidelines and say, why aren't they doing this or why haven't they accomplished this or achieved this? Um, I don't know who who's going to be the next. I don't think AA has has um, named a successor to Robert Ivy. Um, I don't know who that's going to be. What that's you know what that role is going to look like. But um, but I think we all again member or not. I think we all need to um, figure out what we can do. Let's see. Ed says, I'm gleaming storytelling. Had a prospect, a lady whose dad, a concrete contractor, concrete contractor built her a house. She hated it, and it was less than two, 10 years old. It was all brick, which is not cheap, but had no sense of style. Flawed houses still cost a lot to construct. Yeah, yes, this is absolutely true. And so that woman maybe had a, um, not an architect, but a builder that... <laughs> Maybe didn't listen as as much as they should have. I don't know. Somebody wants to know. It's asking Jay if we're going to have homemade ice cream at Ecclestock before we trek to Ben and Jerry's. Well, at least I, included you know, the trek to Ben and Jerry's because you know that. What I heard, yeah. What I heard was that every meal. At Ecclestock was going to consist of chocolate chip cookies and ice cream. So, oh. <laughs> so there. Really? Maybe you heard I something that, I haven't heard yet. I think that was yet. on the menu. <laughs> huh? All right, yeah. cool. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe maybe I read that wrong. So my sound went out there, Jay. Yeah. I mean, um, Jeff, can you say that again? Jay has planned for us to have um, 
chocolate chip cookies and ice cream at every meal. And that's what we're having at Eccles Style. Did I hear you correctly? Yes. Yeah. Come on. Yes. Every every meal at Ecclestock, I saw it somewhere. Um, people are lots of people are saying that uh, every meal at Ecclestock will consist of chocolate chip cookies and ice cream. Yeah, we should have mentioned. And that if you do it right, you put the ice cream between the cookies. Yeah. Well, that would be for lunch because that's like a sandwich, right? Breakfast sandwiches are a thing. That's true. But you could break up the cookies like cereal and then put some ice cream over it for breakfast. We can all do what we want. That's the beauty of it. This is true. That is the beauty of it. Um, before we you know, go completely down the rabbit hole, if we haven't already, about uh, cookies and ice cream, it's too late, uh, it's, it is too late. Um, to round out this week of Context and Clarity, we will, tomorrow we'll be back to our, uh, what would that be, bi-weekly? Every other week, uh, we have a tradition of our member spotlight event. So tomorrow we will have a member spotlight. It'll be a, a, a mystery member of the Context and Clarity community. And so as long as I don't mess up and share uh, share a title, at the beginning we will try to guess who our mystery member in the spotlight is tomorrow. And then next week, um, on Thursday for Context and Clarity Live, our special guest will be Julie Taylor, who is the, um, she's the founder and principal of Taylor and Company. It's a PR firm for the built environment, as Julie likes to say it. She is a, uh, uh, an, uh, design advocate, um, she likes to say. So we're going to be talking about PR, public relations, all week next week. Um, the the uh, the working the working questions right now are: How do you? What do you do to promote your business? What does getting published mean in 2021? What's the value of design awards? Then we'll talk to Julie, of course, on Thursday, and then on Friday we'll have a special live edition of context and clarity from Ecclestock in Vermont, northern oh, Vermont, I, almost Canada. I forgot that was next week. It's next week, Catherine. Wow. Next week. And we're, we will also do uh, a live on Saturday, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're having a special super live on Saturday. Super live. So we'll have, <laughs> yeah. to, get, uh, we'll have to get some special theme music or something for that. Yeah, we will. <laughs> So that's all that's coming up next week. Uh, so Context and Clarity running all the way through Saturday next week. Um, if you can join us. Um, for Sunday, because we'll still be doing stuff Sunday. True, It's going to be true. a long weekend. It's going to be a long weekend. Context yeah. and Clarity. It is. It is. Join us. Uh, join us in Vermont. There's still time. You can still get there. Uh, there's information on the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. There's a, an event set up there inside that Facebook group. So check that out. Join us in Vermont. Um, what else? What are we missing? What do we need to cover before we sign off here? Well, I just want to say that was very, ple- I was pleasantly, um, I was just, I thought that was a very interesting uh, it talk that he gave just now. I mean, when we were talking about how we hope that we're going to talk about something that we haven't already heard people talk about, I feel like that happened today. I agree. Right? I mean, I haven't heard him say any of that stuff, and I, um, I am actually going to go back and listen because I, I want to remember more. Write it down. It was yeah, good. The, I enjoyed it. What I'm saying. 
Yeah. One of the things that most of you are not privy to, obviously, is our planning meetings for context and clarity. And, and, you know, I say over and over that my goal when we have these conversations, because we do, we do try to have people on, uh, obviously that are interesting and that are relevant, but, you know, we want to have people that you're excited to hear from. Um, and so a lot of these people are interviewed over and over on podcasts and other places. And so my goal is always to have a conversation that I haven't heard yet. I've listened to, I think, five podcast interviews with Robert Ivey this week leading up to today. And so my goal is to to not have a conversation that I heard in one of those interviews. And I, I do think we accomplished that today, I think. Um, we did. We did. Yeah. You know, maybe he's just never, maybe he's always had to talk about that look up campaign for the last however many years. And yeah, people, that's, that's you know, important. Kinda, yeah. yeah. Yep. Anyway, so, yeah. that was fun. Yeah, I think it was a good conversation. Let us know what you think about that conversation. We're always uh, we always want to have your feedback as well uh, on on all of these conversations and on future guests. If you have suggestions for future guests, um, you know that's honestly that's one of the hardest parts of of all of this is to get far enough ahead with guests that we have scheduled. So if you have suggestions, let us know. Uh, we're, you know, we're reaching out to people to get them scheduled. And, um, if there's somebody that you just really, really want to hear from, message me, message Catherine, let us know so that we can reach out and see if we can get them, um, get them onto Context and Clarity Live. <laughs> They're, um, <laughs> feel, feel a little bit bad because we've had a couple of, of, uh, swings and misses lately with people that, um, either are completely inaccessible um, or don't don't do interviews, um, and a couple of them were um, some that I really kind of had my hopes up about. So, you, you like know. the Pope? Well, the Pope. We have we haven't been able to get in touch with the Pope yet. Um, we tried. tried. I mean, really tried, Jeff. I don't think you mm-hmm. tried. We'll talk about that next week. Yeah, uh, but Maya Lynn. Okay. If, if anybody has. I, I, if anybody has contact information for, for Maya Lynn, we'd love to have it. But there's a part of me that also feels, you know, if she makes it this hard for strangers to reach out to her, then, you know, maybe we should just let that be. Um, so, you know, trying to balance that out. But, uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, there, there, you know, there are just some people and there are people that some of you have that have suggested that, you know, there's another one that just, yep, not doing that anymore. Not doing interviews anymore, so you know that's yep. a reality. Yep, that's true. Well, um, we can we can also maybe make a make a brainstorm a list next weekend. We can really make it worth your time driving, flying, and then driving to Vermont by coming up with a big list. Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll do that. We'll have plenty of time uh, this weekend or next weekend, I guess, to uh, talk yep. about how to make context and clarity better. So there we go. Mm-hmm. There you go. All right. Well, thank you, Catherine, and thank you to everybody out there. We appreciate all of you. Um, Appreciate all of your comments, even when we can't get to them um, in these conversations. Um, Appreciate all of your suggestions, and and really, I I say this over and over, but I I mean this, right? Without you, we would not have this conversation uh, today with uh, Robert Ivey or with Julie next week or 
or uh, belonging last week. You know, so um, you have made context and clarity a thing, and we appreciate that. Um, and we look forward to continuing this. So um, until tomorrow, if you want to join us at 9 a.m. Eastern uh, on Clubhouse tomorrow, we will have another get to know you, get to know you in the community on Clubhouse tomorrow morning. And then, of course, we'll have our member spotlight inside the Entree Architect community Facebook group, same bat time, same bat channel, 4 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. And until then, take care of yourselves. Be well, be safe, keep those around you safe and well. Encourage everyone to do their best to stay well and uh, take a little bit of time this evening to relax, breathe a little bit, get rejuvenated. We're going to do this all again tomorrow and Monday and Tuesday and every day next week. So thanks, everybody. Appreciate you. And uh, we'll see you around somewhere sometime soon. Bye, everybody. Before we go, I want to say thank you to Twinmotion for their support of this episode of Context and Clarity Live. Visit Twinmotion today at twinmotion.link slash clarity and try Twinmotion for free. And also, thank you to Monograph for their support of this podcast episode. To reserve a seat at their first ever interactive virtual conference, visit sectioncut.com today. Thanks for listening to this week's Context and Clarity Live episode. Selfishly, I love these conversations because I get to be the go-between between you and some really incredible guests. To that end, I want to know what you think about today's guest. Message me on the socials. I'm really easy to find. I'm Jeff underscore Eccles everywhere. If you happen to run across a white-haired chiropractor from Austin, Texas, yeah, that's not me. I'm the other Jeff Eccles. Oh, and if you have an idea for a future guest, tell me who it is and why you think they'd be a good guest for one of these conversations. Maybe we can get them on a future episode. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate you, and I'll see you next week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. 
It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.